If you have your Bibles, please turn them to Ephesians 3, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Good evening. It is great to see you here tonight. We are so, as always, thankful for your presence and thankful for the opportunity for us to be together to praise and glorify our holy God. Seems to be the case you may have heard something about me today. So I'd like to say a word about our elders. No, I would not. <laughs> that word would be thank you for the weekend and having Brad Harris here. Was that any good or what? Absolutely amazing. So thankful that Brad came and did the outstanding job that he did. And if you were here, you, you have to be better, don't you? You just, we just have to be better having heard that. When you hear things like that, especially well, the cumulative nature of those sermons, but the one about being convicted no doubt we all left a little different thinking, were we not, about what we probably thought in terms of what I could do, which is fine. I think it'd be maybe more advantageous to think in terms of what I can be. Uh, we can get closer to the Lord, and we can become more and more like Him. And so I just encourage, as you go through the week this week, maybe narrow it down, maybe not so much a thousand different things I can do. But what is it in my life, my character, my spirit, my thinking, my way of being in general that can be more like Jesus? And that will in turn move you to do. We are trying to be like him, and uh, it's just a great blessing. Thankful to our elders for doing it, and thankful for you for making it a success by being here all week hearing it. No doubt we'll be better because of it. We are talking about tips to understand the Bible. We began that last week. We gave five tips. Uh, God is, is what we said. God spoke. God spoke in words. God spoke in known languages. God spoke in propositional speech or language. Tonight, we turn our attention to five keys to remember as we're studying through the Bible and trying to understand it. And so, we'll jump right in because I hear your, your speaker is long-winded. Uh, Five keys. Five keys. Number one, please remember this. The Bible is a book. Now, I said to you two weeks ago these would be basic and rather foundational. And I say that because it's actually a collection of 66 books. And if you broke the Bible apart, you'd actually have a library of 66 books on your shelf. And while it is one, that's absolutely true. It's 66 individual books, and each one of them is an entity unto itself. And so, in understanding the Bible, you must begin there. And then you must move to the reality that each one of those books is connected to the whole. And each one of those books contributes to the whole in some way. And so, as we will talk maybe in another session, we'll talk about the idea of context. But that's what's so important about the Bible and understanding it. Each one of these books contributes to the sum 
of the Word of God. The psalmist says the sum of God's Word is truth. And what's intended, and the way the Bible is intended to be used, is to let the Bible tell us what the Bible means. And so it does. But you and I need to understand that in this book, it will tell us what it means. Take, for instance, a passage like Joel chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and you'd be turning to Joel chapter 2 and you turn down to about verse 28, you'll start reading about. Now, bear in mind, Joel is a prophet prophesying these things. They're not going to be for the people hearing them. They're not going to be in their day. And so when Joel makes the statements, it shall come to pass in the last days that the God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Those are the words that Joel is saying. Hundreds of years later, the apostle Peter will stand up with the other apostles in Acts 2 and quote that. So if you're in Joel, I do this, I'm sorry, leave Joel, turn to Acts 2. And listen to the Bible tell us what the Bible means. Peter will, now again, every time we do this, we jump sort of in the middle of passages, and so we're at verse 14. I would assume then you know the events of chapter 1, and you know the events of chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you were ever curious as to how sermons get long, that's how. So you would have to read Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. We have to jump in at verse 14, because in verse 14, Peter stands up with the eleven and raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known unto you. Give heed to these words. These men are not drunk. That was the accusation back just a few verses ago, verses 11, 12, 13. Some were amazed, others mocked. To the mockers who said these men are drunk, Peter and the others say these men are not drunk, seeing as but the third hour of the day. But verse 16, Peter says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Here is an inspired uh, prophet in Joel being quoted by an inspired apostle in Peter. And the inspired apostle is quoting the words of the inspired prophet. Now, from Joel to Peter, it may be the case that people didn't know what this meant. Maybe they read Joel and said, at some point in time, it appears something's going to happen. Maybe they said God is going to do something with his spirit. That's what Joel said. But what does that mean? Peter says, this is that. And then he quotes Joel. Eric, how do you know that's what the Bible be? The Bible is a book. And the Bible explains the Bible. It does this over and over and over and over again. The reason to tell you the Bible is a book, though, is to also tell you it must be read. Now, I know with our technology, I could also say it must be heard. You, you got to get the information. That's the point. Now, either through reading or through hearing, you have to get the words of the Bible into your heart. The Bible is a book. It has to be read. Paul says, wherefore, when you read, you can understand my knowledge. The Bible is a book, number one. Number two, the Bible has a theme. 
The Bible actually tells, if you'll allow this language, a story. Now, it's not make-believe by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a narrative. It unfolds a story, a continuous thread of thought all the way through it. It has a theme, and unfortunately, sometimes people miss that. The Bible contains history, but it's not a history book. And so sometimes people go to the Bible and say, well, tell me about this people. Well, the Bible may not talk about those people. For a long time, people thought the Hittites didn't exist because they said there's no archaeological evidence of it. Well, they found some, but that's not the point. If it never did say a word about them, if we never did find anything, it's not a history book. The Bible contains science, pre-scientific information, life is in the blood. We didn't know that. Circle of the earth and on and on you could go, but it's not a science book. And so sometimes when people approach the Bible, they approach it from a scientific point. I want the Bible to do this for me. Bible's not a science book. Contains science, but not a science book. Bible's not a sociology book. It's not. Talks about societies, talks about people, but it's not a sociology book. The Bible is a book about redemption. It has a theme. You may hear phrases like the scheme of redemption, or you may hear something like, the plan of salvation. Now, typically when we use the phrase plan of salvation, we're talking about what we call the five steps. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. That's what we're talking about, the plan of salvation. Some people have taken that to stretch it across the entirety of the Bible and say, well, the Bible, the whole thing is about salvation. Well, that'd be true. You could say it's the scheme of redemption. You could say it's the plan of salvation. But you and I don't actually have to guess about what it is because the Bible tells us what the theme is. It's there in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible self-describes itself as a mystery. What you and I are reading when we're reading the Bible is a mystery. And as we're reading, we're being unfolded. The mystery is being explained to us little by little. It's as if a curtain is being drawn back, exposing more and more and more as it goes backward. Something is being unfurled or unveiled, and we're being allowed to get more and more and more and more information. That's what the Scripture is. You might hear a preacher or a Bible school teacher say in summation of this, it, the Bible is about the salvation of man through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. It's not a bad summation at all, but the Bible will tell us. What is it about? It's not mysterious. Please don't confuse the words. It's not mystical. It's not what it is. The Bible says it's a mystery. Let's read it together there in Ephesians chapter 3. Begin reading with me at verse number 1. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Now, again, we could park every one of these times and talk about what each passage means. There is again some of this knowledge, this familiarity you would need. And so let me just offer very quickly, Paul says there in verse number two, if indeed you have heard, why would they have heard, Paul? He said, the stewardship given to me. Well, what is it about you that other people would have heard? Go back and read Acts chapter six, seven, eight, and nine. They would have known Paul, then Saul. They would have heard. Read Galatians chapter 1 and how he says they heard only that he who once persecuted the faith now preaches it and proclaims it. They would have heard. 
The church would have been at great unrest when Saul of Tarsus was wreaking havoc on men and women, hailing them to prison, giving his voice against them, being injurious, destroying lives, ruining families. They would have heard. And now that man is proclaiming and preaching the very gospel he tried to stomp out. Paul says that Christ appeared to me to make me an apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles would have heard. The Jews would have heard. Paul says, maybe you've heard. Maybe you've heard about the dispensation, the stewardship that was given to me. Verse number three, he explains that by revelation, there was made known unto me the mystery. Well, what's the mystery, Paul? He'll explain it in just a few verses, but that's your Bible. Every time you open the Bible, you're reading the mystery. You're not reading anything else. In fact, Paul says that this mystery was made known to him by revelation. Well, what does that mean? We have two words now. We have revelation and we have mystery. The revelation is God revealing, making known something to Paul he couldn't have otherwise known. He revealed it to me. He made me aware of it. You'll want to see 1 Corinthians 2, 8 through 13 as well to hear him discuss the same thing over there. Paul says, I didn't know it, but God told it to me. He revealed it to me. What did he reveal? He revealed the mystery. Now, with regards to this mystery, Paul says, wherefore I wrote before in brief. King James might say, I wrote a four in few words. That's because in chapters one, he introduced the mystery. He says, I've already written about it briefly chapter 1, about verse 7, 8, 9 or so, and now he's, he returns to it here, and he talks about it more at length. By referring to this, verse number 4, when you read, you can understand. Here's the great part about inspiration and revelation. Whatever the prophets and the apostles received from God directly, they gave to men. And so, whatever those men heard, it was what these individuals heard. It was not two different things. It's not like the prophets got a message, gave it to the people, and it was a different message. It's not like the apostles received something from the Holy Spirit, but when they said it, they didn't say it all. Or when they wrote it, they didn't give you at all. No, Paul says, when you read, you can understand, but notice how he words it, my knowledge in the mystery. You get what I got. When the Holy Spirit told it to me, I'm telling it to you. It's the same message. And when you read it, you can understand it. Well, what is it? He says, first of all, in verse number five, before we got here, nobody knew it, which in other generations or ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now being revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is revealing to the apostles and to the prophets the mystery of God. If you had an—if you were to read, for instance, Luke chapter 24, where Jesus is walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus, and they say to him how he opened the Scriptures to them. Jesus is doing this very thing. He's taking the Old Testament, and then he's taking that and explaining him. He is walking them through the Old Testament and telling them, this is that, and this is what that means, and this is what this means. And he walks them, and when they conclude in that conversation, they hear, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he made known unto us the Scriptures? Paul says, in other ages, it was not made known. It's now being revealed. What is it? If you ever wondered, what's my Bible about? What's the mystery? There's a passage here, verse number 6, where Paul tells us this is what the mystery is. This is what the Bible is about. To be specific, 
It has about four or five different parts to it. But notice that he begins with these words, that the Gentiles. So there are Jews and then there are Gentiles. And throughout the whole Old Testament, the Jews are God's chosen special people above all nations. But Paul says here, here's the mystery. It was never a mystery that the Jews were God's people. In fact, they understood that, and they probably proclaimed that to anybody who would hear. When we meet the woman at the well in John chapter 4, she says, you know the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Why not? Well, we're God's chosen special people. You are not. When Peter gets to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, he says, you know how it's an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to have company with a man of another nation. It takes God the God of heaven, three times to convince Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, sir, I've never eaten anything common, and no common thing will come into my mouth. What God has cleansed, don't you call common. The mystery is not that the Jews were God's chosen special people. The mystery is that the Gentiles are included. Paul says, here's the mystery, that the Gentiles— should be fellow heirs. With whom? The Jews. If you had Jews and you had Gentiles, you have humanity. You have all mankind. Here's the mystery, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Well, fellow heirs would be those who will inherit an inheritance. He goes on to say, fellow heirs and of the same body. As the Apostle Paul discussed the body in the book of Ephesians, you go back to chapter 1, chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 22 and 23. He says, and he had put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. What's the body? The body's the church. Well, what's the mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise which is in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In another series, which we will have at some point, don't know when, but we'll talk about it, we will talk about the church and its importance and its singular nature, and why the church is what it is. This is sort of the introduction to that thought. God is working out a mystery, unfolding a mystery whereby every human being can be reconciled to him in one place, in one body. That's the mystery. Read it in another passage. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice what Paul says here beginning in verse 17. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, he says in verse 18, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, there aren't many things I'm going to fight over anybody with one way or the other, not too much. And even this, I won't fight you too hard on it. I just think what Paul means by us is apostles and prophets. I don't think it's a general statement of all Christians. There are those who say, well, we are Christ's ambassadors. I get the sentiment, but I don't think we actually are. I think they were. 
I think the ones who have the ministry of reconciliation, I think it's the very people. But notice what he says next. He says, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, here's the mystery explained, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Note the difference in pronoun. As if God was making an appeal through us, we beg you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What's the Bible about? That's what the Bible is about. Now, telling you that has this other side to it, and that is this, then that means the Bible is not about a lot of things, too. For instance, that means the Bible is not about my personal agenda. The Bible is not about my personal wants or desires. The Bible is not about what I think God should and should not do in the world. The Bible is not about my health, my wellness, my family, my marriage, my children, my job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Bible is not about those things. Now, Eric, wait a minute. If you're going to tell me that the Bible is not about those things, then what's the point of the Bible? I did not say the Bible won't help you with all of those things. Because God did an amazing thing. While unfolding his mystery, which is what the Bible is about, he also provided wisdom on all of those other things too. And so can you go to the Bible for how to have a family? You absolutely can. Can you go to the Bible for how to be a fantastic parent? You can and you should. Can you go to the Bible and learn how to have a great marriage? You can and you should. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3, Peter says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us all things that pertain to life. I heard, um, I believe it was Dan Jenkins talk about that verse pertaining to life and godliness. And one of the things he says is that things that pertain to something aren't necessarily essential to it. For instance, he said, a car could run without seats. True? Yes, no, maybe so. I didn't say engine or gas. I said seats, people. Can it run without a seat? So then a seat pertains to the car, but wouldn't you rather have the seat? It's that sort of thing. It's not just the bare bones essentials. God has given us all things that pertain to life. So he's not only provided the very basics, he's given us so much more. And that's certainly true of Scripture. But when you're reading the Bible, that's not the primary point of the Bible. If you're seeking to understand the Bible, then you're trying to understand the mystery. You are trying to understand how God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. One more passage and we'll move on. Look back in Acts chapter 2 and listen to how our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection is described. When God finished his work and, if you will, handed the baton to Christ and Christ did his work and the Holy Spirit came and Christ ascended, the apostles are now preaching the resurrected Christ 
the gospel in its purity and completeness. And this is how it's described in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 beginning. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. This man, this man, he says, delivered by the determinate counsel. Listen to that. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Take Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Two things being true at the same time. Peter then says, but you were wicked. It's not simply the case that God was going to send Jesus to the cross. It's that individuals had freedom of choice to choose along the way. Both of those things ran concurrently. But Jesus is not on that cross purely because you're evil. Jesus is not on that cross purely because something you did. No, Jesus is on that cross because that's God's plan. And that's the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God wouldn't have it any other way. In fact, that is the plan. We left Ephesians 3, so I'll just give you the reference. If you will go back over there and read verses 9 through 11, you will hear the church described as the eternal purpose of God. All that means is the church was in God's mind from eternity. It is no afterthought. When you are reading the Bible, you're reading the mystery. Number three, the Bible is the intended to be understood. Sometimes people say, well, nobody can understand the Bible. That's not true. The Bible was given with the intention of being understood. This mystery of which we just talked would be of no good if we couldn't understand it. The whole point in giving it is, as we just read in verse number four of Ephesians, when you read, you can understand. But listen, you got help. The prophets, Jesus, the apostles, they would refer people back to Scripture. They would get in Bible discussions and they would ask, have you not read? Read what? Well, you were supposed to read the Bible. And then if you had read that, you would have understood. That's Paul's point. That's Peter's point. You're supposed to read it. It's intended to be understood. The prophets are quoted and applied, and that's the understanding everyone is to leave with. Go over to Matthew chapter 1. You open up the book of Matthew, you read through the genealogy. It's really amazing how many prophecies you read so early in the book of Matthew, one right after the other. You, once you pass the genealogy down to about verse 17, from verses 18 to 25, you start reading prophecy. But it's not just that you're reading prophecy, it will say, the prophet said this, and you can find the reference. The prophet is to be understood by the New Testament prophet. So, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take Mary unto you a wife. The child which conceived her is of the Holy One. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now, all of this was done. All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. What prophet? He quotes it. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted or translated is God with us. If you're in the New Testament, you can take the Old Testament and say, oh, that's what that means. 
It's intended to be understood, and it'll help you understand it. The location of the birth of Jesus. Turn over to chapter 2 of this book. Herod is concerned. After this, Jesus was born, chapter 2, verse 1, Bethlehem, Judah, days of Herod the king from the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he? Who was born king of the Jews? We, we've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. When Herod heard the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled at all Jerusalem with him. What did he do? Verse number four says he gathered together all the chief priests and scribes. Now, what would they have at their disposal? He asked them. He inquired, where's the Messiah to be born? They said, hmm, let us think about that. They said, I think somebody maybe said something. I'll go check with my cousin Frank. Nope, nope. Immediately, verse number five, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for that is what has been written by the prophet. And then they quoted it. It's intended to be understood, and it goes this way all the way through. Coincidentally, that was Isaiah 7, 14, and Micah 5, 2, but it continues. What about the forerunner? That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Isaiah 40, and verse number 3. The one who was to prepare the way of the Lord, John the Baptist, he's quoted Isaiah 40 and verse 3, Matthew 3, 1 to 3. Or what about the temptation, Matthew 4, Ma Matthew chapter 1, prophecy, chapter 2, prophecy, chapter 3, prophecy, chapter 4, Scripture is quoted— by Jesus and the devil, misapplied by the devil, explained and corrected by Jesus. It's possible to quote the Scripture correctly and misapply it, and you have the wrong conclusion. It's not the case, best of my knowledge, that Satan misquotes the Scripture. He misapplies the Scripture. Jesus clears up the correction or the error with the truth. Matthew 4, 1 to 10, you could read Psalm 91, 11, and 12, Deuteronomy 6, 13, and verse 16, as well as Deuteronomy 8 and verse number 3. And coincidentally, if you want to understand the Lord's temptation, you, you'd be hard-pressed to do that by way of the answers He gives by not going back and reading Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8 and Psalm 91. The Lord's answers, at the very least, if all you read were the New Testament, would leave you scratching your head or they'd be confusing to you without the background that he quotes. Here's what that means. It also gives you what Deuteronomy 6 means, what Deuteronomy 8 means. If the Lord says this in response to that, he quoted this, then he is telling us what this means, and Satan is misapplying the passage, but the Bible will do that. Look at Matthew chapter 12 by way of example. Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees, as they were wont to do, misunderstand try to tempt Jesus. Verse number one, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of the grains and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, I heard one person ask, what were they doing in the fields looking? I don't know. I don't know why people passing through grain fields, getting a little bit and eating it and keep going is a bother to you. I don't know the answer to that. But they saw it. Not only did they see it, they had questions and accusations. Verse number two, look, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, notice what he said, have you not read? You mean there's something that could clear this up for us? Yes. Have you not read? But it's not just reading, it's reading and understanding and then accurately applying. 
Notice what our Lord says. Have you not read what David did when he became hungry and he was with his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated uh, bread, which was not lawful for him to eat for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Have you not read that? Verse number six, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, it's another prophecy. If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. If you had known what that meant. Jesus then does similar things in Matthew 23, verses 17 to 22 with the Pharisees concerning that which is greater, the gold or the temple. The Bible is intended to be understood. But number four, that means the Bible must be read with the intent of understanding. You have to come to the Bible with the intention of understanding its theme and its instruction. So let me just say a word or two with this with regards to approaching the Bible. It could be the case that our greatest hindrance to understanding the Bible is us. It's our intentions and expectations when we come to the Bible. A lot of times when people finally are ready to come to the Bible, they come with many hurdles. Among them are life circumstances. Whatever we are going through in the moment, we come to the Bible looking for answers. And we often then misunderstand the Bible because we want a solution that's very quick and immediate to our problems. And in this dynamic, very often, we don't actually start with the Bible. We start with prayer, if we can call it that. By prayer, I really mean we come asking God to fix it, fill in the blank. And then if we don't get what we ask after we've waited a little while, that'll be our decision as to how long, we began to make this progression. And so we did ask, it wasn't solved, and so we moved to begging. We start saying things like, God, please, I really want this. I really need this. If we don't get that request, then we move to bargaining. If you will give me this, then I'll fill in the blank. I'll get right if I'm not right. I'll do better if I'm not doing better. I'll be what you want me to be. Whatever it is, just give me what I need. But what if you don't get it? Well, then we move to demanding. I told you that if you love me, I've done everything you've asked me to do. And you're not going to do this for me. What if you don't get that? Well, now we, we just about moved to doubting. You hear people say things like, yeah, I don't really believe in prayer. I don't really read the Bible that much. Why not? Don't work for me. You ever come to the Bible with the intention of understanding its contents? Has that been your approach? From there, we move to the Bible. Truth is, we're not in the best place to understand the Bible and its contents when we arrive at it like this. By now, very often in our lives, we're actually disobeying God in one way or another. We're violating some scripture that God has enjoined upon us, something for us to do. We're not doing it effectively because he didn't do what we wanted. And so, come to the Bible, we have to use it in the way it's designed to be used. We keep talking about those Bereans because 
they received it with all readiness of mind. They searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In the Scripture, God is revealing Himself. Acts 17, 27, Paul says that they should seek the Lord. How can you do that, Scripture? You can't seek Him and find Him any other way. Jesus says, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Most people don't realize this. You already have a yoke. It's not like you don't have one and then Jesus is going to give you one. No, the Lord's point is, if you're tired of carrying the yoke that you have, if you are finally burdened and broken by the yoke of sin and self, if you are finally tired of that, come to me, take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. Bible's not much about anything else. It's about learning Jesus. I thought you said it could help me with my marriage. It it can if you learn Jesus. I thought you said it could help me as a parent. It can if you learn Jesus. Go over to Colossians chapter 3. Did I tell you how sermons get long? This is one more way. Colossians chapter 3. I want you to see this in real time in the Bible itself. This idea of Jesus and learning Him and then moving to the benefits of all of those things that He provides. Now again, we're in chapter 3 of a four-chapter book. I have to keep saying that so that you understand there's a context already been set. There's information that's already been given. There are evidences and facts and proofs already provided. And by the time we get here, all of that is understood and argued, and now application is being made. That application centers around everything that's already been said about Jesus. Begin reading in verse number 18. Notice a a repeating theme. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting. How? In the Lord. What makes a wife want to be subject to her husband? Her husband? No. He's so great. No. He's so romantic. No. I mean, I hope he is. Great if he is. But that's not why. That's not her motivation. What's their motivation? The Lord. Come to me, learn of me, take my yoke, then go. But you cannot get there without this. You can't get where you're wanting to go without Jesus, which is why the book is about Jesus. That's what is come to me, take my yoke, learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest to your soul. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service of those merely pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, 
Do your work heartily. How? As for the Lord. Who would that involve? Wouldn't it involve everybody that's been listed? Wouldn't it involve husbands and wives and children and employees? Wouldn't it involve everybody that's already been? But what else does he say? Knowing from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And then this caveat at the end, and this may be one of the hardest things in practically living out the teachings of the Lord, is, okay, I'm a wife, I'm a child, I'm a father. What if the other people don't do their job? You talk about hard work. You talk about tough sledding. Where would you go for the example of a person doing right and receiving wrong? The Lord. Who is going to motivate you to keep doing right, even when others don't? The Lord you learned. The Lord you're serving. The Lord you're modeling your life after. He's the one and the reason. But maybe for your comfort or maybe as a warning, verse 25 appears at the end of this chapter. Maybe for your comfort and maybe as a warning. He who does wrong, don't leave the context. There have been four groups listed. Don't leave the context. He who does wrong, could that be a wife? He who does wrong, could that be a husband? He who does wrong, could that be children? He who does wrong, could that be the servants? He who does wrong will receive for the wrong which he had done, and there is no respecter of persons. You don't have to get them. God will judge. You don't have to fix it. God will judge. It is comforting and a warning to everybody. Learn Jesus. The Bible is intended to be understood. God's work is or was a mystery. It's not mystical and it's not mysterious. And the mystery has been revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong unto the Lord, but those things that are revealed. When Moses writes that or speaks that in Deuteronomy 29, the rest of the Bible hadn't yet been revealed. It has now. It's been revealed. The mystery has been revealed. We can know what God is doing. We can know who God is. We can know God's plan. We can know what God has revealed. Finally, this, number five, the Bible is to be taken literally unless something in the context demands a figurative explanation. Of all the things we've said so far tonight, and this is typical of sermons, the last four minutes, of all the things we've said tonight, this will be the most important. Now, I won't spend as much time on this one because, well, frankly, I've already spent the time somewhere else. The point, though, is this one you need to get. The Bible is to be taken literally unless something in the context demands a figurative explanation. Because God is not trying to trick us. 
God is not trying to send us on a wild goose chase. God is not asking us to figure it out. He's already explained it. From the very beginning, God talks very plainly, very literally. There are six days of creation. He numbers them. He says there's an evening, there's a morning, and then he counts. One, two, three, four, five, six. That's it. He doesn't mean you to understand that any other way. These are not intended to be thought of as long geological ages. Somebody has to tell you that. Reading the Bible won't tell you that because you do know what a day is. It's not an eon. It's not an epic. It's not a geological day. It's a day, but not only that. When Moses writes the book of Exodus, says those words in Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 11, he takes the work week of Israel and compares it to the work week of God. And he says, as God works six days, you will work six days. Sometimes you read uh, Genesis chapter 2, and it says, and God rested the seventh day. Well, he worked six, he stopped on number seven. He did not work Israel. You work six and stop on seven. If you can understand it here, you can understand it here. It's not trickery, it's not sleight of hand, it's not anything but literal language. And Moses can't get it wrong over here. Moses is the one who wrote Genesis. Moses is the one who's writing Exodus, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring him on both occasions. He's not in disagreement with himself. If he says God worked six days, then God worked six days. If you were in the nation of Israel and Moses was talking and he says to you, you should have no other gods before me, Exodus 20 and verse number 1 down to verse number 3, you should not bow down to them, you should not make any graven image of anything like under the heavens, under the earth, or anything like that. God is a jealous God. He says this, and he gets to verses in 9, 10, and 11, he says, you should work six days. What would you have thought? Oh, he means long geological age. No. Everybody there would have understood. We work six, we rest the seventh. Why? That's what God did. Sometimes people read these passages and they think, oh, that's creation versus evolution. It's not. It's not a creation evolution thing. It's not. It's not a big bang or creation. It's not. It is an inspiration thing. If the Bible is inspired, Moses is right in both places. If Moses is wrong in Exodus, Moses is wrong. If Moses is wrong in Genesis, he's wrong. You can't be a prophet writing by inspiration and make mistakes. It's not how inspiration works. You can't be a prophet writing by inspiration, speaking by inspiration, and get the facts wrong. If Moses tells Israel, God works six days, you work six days, he can't be wrong about that. If he's wrong, it's not creation and evolution, it's inspiration. And if Moses is wrong here, well, you can just, listen, you can take the whole thing away. I'm amazed at people who think that you can believe pieces and parts of the Bible and then go on forward. No, you cannot. It all stands or it all falls. If it's not inspired, we are wasting our time. Additionally, with regards to Scripture, you must be consistent. If the days in creation week are not 24-hour days, what are the other days in the Bible? Moses on the, door, on, the, on the mount 40 days. 40 what? You tell me. What's he mean there? The Lord was in the tomb three days. Jonah in the belly three days. What does he mean? And who's going to decide? 
Who's going to decide when a day is 24 hours? And when a day is long geological ages with no indefinite time? Who's going to decide that? You? Should we come to you and ask, pick the passages and tell me which one is the long geological age and which one is the day? Where can I squeeze millions and billions? Which one of those is it? It doesn't work that way. The Bible is to be taken literally unless something in the context demands a figurative explanation. Now, why tell you that? Because sometimes the Bible uses figurative language. Sometimes it is intended to be understood figuratively. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door. Did you enter a door here tonight, anybody? You come through a door? If Jesus says, I'm the door, what does he mean? You don't think he means he's a knob and he, you can turn, that's not, no, it's figurative language because the Bible has figurative language in it. You read John chapter 10, but here's the amazing thing about God. If he intends figurative language, he'll explain it in the context you're reading, which is why number five is the Bible is to be taken literally, first literally, unless Something in the context demands a figurative explanation, and sometimes it does. There are parables in the Bible. There are fables in the Bible. Sometimes, but the context will always tell us. What the truth is, though, is you don't get to decide which is which. The context does. There are some people who a literal approach to, Bible, to the Bible conflicts with their beliefs, and so then they just chuck it all as being figurative. They say things like Luke 16, 19 to 31. Well, that's just a parable. Jesus talking about the rich man and Lazarus. Actually, that's just a parable. Here's the problem. A parable is either something that did happen or could happen. You don't change the meaning by simply announcing it's a parable. The real problem is you don't believe the literal language of the Bible. The real problem is you don't believe a person has a soul. You don't believe that that soul will be conscious. You don't believe that that soul will suffer eternally or live with God eternally. Those beliefs are what's bothering your understanding, not the language of Scripture. If you will indulge me just for 30 seconds, I shouldn't say that because that's not true. If, you, if you'll indulge me one more second, though, let me just add this. I'll slide down. Whenever you see my finger doing like this, just know, cutting you a break. <laughs> just, just know, I'm, I'm moving through. Here's my point, though, in all of that. So some people hear that. They say, okay, the Bible is to be taken literally unless something in the context of man's future explanation. So then what they try to do, and here's the mistake they make, they try to do a literal interpretation of the Bible. They're not taking the language literally. They're being and trying to remove the figurative usages of Scripture. Or sometimes when Scripture is doing something and intending or teaching another lesson. Take, for instance, John 13, 12 to 17, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Is that language in that text literal? Well, yes, it is. Are the events literal? Well, yes, they are. Are you and I to literally wash each other's feet? Well, no, we're not. If you try to take a literal interpretation of everything in the Bible, you're going to run into problems because Jesus explains, I've given you an example that as I have done unto you, you should do to one another. Well, what's the example? It's service. It's humility. It's being willing to be a servant, but it's not a command to wash feet. Another example. 
It will remove the usages and figures of speech like the word metonymy, where a figure of speech that consists of the use or name of one object or concept for that of another, which is related. So it might be scepter for sovereignty. It, it, it might be somebody might say, well, give me a head count. You don't actually mean count each head. You mean count the people. The head represents the people. You might take out your phone and say, look at my wife. Well, it's a picture put for a person. That's metonymy. Sometimes the Bible does that. The Lord's Supper, for instance. Jesus came to them and blessed the bread and break it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Don't eat. No, that's not what he means. And then he took the cup and he said, drink ye all of it. Nobody actually drinks cups. It's not what he means. He's putting the content for the cup. He's putting his body for the bread. That's metonymy. The Scripture uses this kind of language. And so, yes, the Bible is to be taken literally, unless something in the context demands a figurative explanation. But you're not supposed to try to twist or pervert Scripture by trying to make them mean something because you've interpreted them literally. Jesus is not actually a door, but he is the entrance into which you must come. And without him, you can't get to the Father. That's what he means. Five things to know. God is. God spoke. God spoke in languages. God spoke in known languages. God spoke in propositional languages. Five important keys to remember. The Bible is a book. The Bible has a theme. The Bible is intended to be understood. The Bible must be read with the intention of understanding God's mystery. And the Bible is to be taken literally unless something in the context demands a figurative explanation. It might be the case tonight that you're not a, a Christian. We thank God and rejoice for the three precious souls that made the decision to become God's children this day. When we finished the third baptism, one of the elders stood up and said, is there anybody else? You know, that is always the question. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody who's given more thought to their soul and to eternity? Is there anybody else who needs to make a decision for the Lord to choose him and to prepare their souls after this life? If that person is you tonight, we invite you, as we always do, to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and to repent, to change your heart, to change your mind, Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins if you've never done that. One of the great things about our Heavenly Father is He's always open. The door is always open. The invitation is always yours, and the plea is always the same. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. If you haven't done that, we implore you this evening, if you have, if you have, if you lived in a way that's not pleasing to your Heavenly Father, make things right with God. Recommit yourself. Check your conviction. Find ways this week that you can draw closer to God to be more like Jesus. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.